0: KYW News Radio original podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in.
1: I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. We go to pin relays, and never forget that Friday morning I woke up and I felt as sick as a dog. I came back to the room. My roommate is still in the bed. He pulled the covers from over his head. And he said, "How'd you do?" So I said, "I won." And he said, get out of here. You didn't win, man. I said, I did. I said, i got to watch. And our guest
0: this week is Norman Tate, assistant track and field coach at Division Three Rowan University down in Glassboro. He was an outstanding athlete in his own right, actually a member of the 1968 U.S. Olympic team in the triple jump. And Coach Tate, thanks so much for taking the time.
1: I thank you for having me.
0: So let's just kind of start. These are crazy times here. Uh, how have the last few months been for you? I mean, you are you guys are still able to do some practice, get some work in? Uh,
1: yes, uh, we've been practicing. Uh, we haven't made it mandatory because we don't know yet if we're going to have an indoor season. They We have a schedule, uh, starts in January. We've been practicing since the second week in October, but uh, most of the kids have been coming. They're the dedicated ones. So I see them every day. Uh, You know, it's just up in the air. You know, it's tough times. They've had a couple of indoor meets at the Armory in New York. Uh, I understand that they were limited, you know, participation. So we don't know just right now how it's going to affect us indoors. Uh, We're still waiting for the school to even decide whether or not they're going to allow us to run yet. And I think that's going to uh, depend on the NCA, you know, what they decide to do ultimately.
0: So let's talk about your career. When did you start? Was track and field always your sport growing up, or were you a kid that played everything?
1: I played everything. I came up in that era where uh, whatever season it was, that's what you played. Uh, I was a product of the... You know, late fifties. I started high school in '56. So uh, you played football, and you know, doing football season. I played basketball for one year, and then I ran indoor track uh, three years and outdoor track for four years. You know, it was just those kind of times where uh, everybody was an athlete, then, and, uh, and you didn't uh, play any one sport specifically. And so I played football and uh, track. In fact, football was my first love, it was just. Uh, In high school, it's so funny, my freshman year in high school, my mom wouldn't sign the permission slip for me to play. So I went out for cross country and I realized that cross country wasn't my, you know, my thing. So uh, the next year I signed my mother's name to the slip and I was playing. She didn't know I was playing. Uh, In fact, she didn't know I was playing until my junior year in high school. My neighbor came over a couple of days before Thanksgiving. She asked my mom, was she going to the football game that Thursday? I went to high school in East Orange and we played Barringer every year. And at that time, the East Orange-Barringer game was one of the oldest games, you know, in high school history. Started back in 1890-something, that rivalry. So, uh, My mom told her that, well, I'm not going to a football game Thursday. I'm going to be getting my Thanksgiving dinner ready. She said, well, you're not going to see your son play? (laughs) And my mom said, play what? (laughs) So uh, that was her introduction to me playing football. But I weighed about 165, which really wasn't that small in, you know, 1960. But uh, when I graduated, I weighed about 170. So I knew I wasn't going to play uh, college football. But I was, uh, you know excelling in track unfortunately and you know I tell this to kids today when uh, in high school uh, I don't look per se when I'm recruiting for a state champion and stuff I didn't have the opportunity to win a state championship in high school I got hurt my senior year at the count at our county championships and at the time I was number one in the 100 to 200 and long jump in the state but I didn't get that opportunity so uh Recruiting wise, uh, I didn't have a lot of schools looking at me uh, in track. Uh, Boston University was one, and if you remember the high jumper, uh, John Thomas. John Thomas was a freshman at Boston University my my senior year, and the coach was recruiting me. And that summer, I you know I had intentions of going to uh, Boston University. That summer. I got hurt, real serious injury. I tore my quad muscle and uh, his name was Doug Raymond. He left Boston and went to Kent State. So he contacted me. I, I was out a whole year. Uh, I graduated in 1960 and wasn't able to even begin running again until 61. So I didn't go to school my first year out of high school. And when I look back at it, actually, it was a, it was a good thing in the sense that I was 17 when I graduated from high school. So that extra year, I just got, you know, a little bigger and a little stronger. So uh, when I went to college, I was the same age as most seniors. I would have been a year younger. Unfortunately, I didn't like Kent State at the time. So uh, I didn't go, I went out to the school, stayed a week and I came back home. And I was, you know, I got a job at uh, this. We used to have a chain of stores back then Uh, that's similar to Walmart today called uh, E.J. Corvette. And uh, so I was working in the store and the coach from Plainfield High School came in the store and he knew me from high school. He asked me, what was I doing, you know, working? uh, Why wasn't I in school? So I told him, you know, about the injury. And then I told him that, uh, you know, I had uh, planned on going to Kent State and didn't like it. So he asked me, he said, well, how would you like to go to North Carolina College? And I had never heard of it. Uh, He said, well, you you know the name Lee Calhoun? Well, I was, you know, I followed track. So I said, yeah. I said, he was Olympic champion in the hurdles. And he said, well, that's the the college he went to. He he says, a small black college in in Durham, North Carolina. If you're interested, uh, I'll give uh, the coach a call. So I said, yeah. I I said, I'll go anywhere right now. You know, it was my mom was telling me at that time, it was either get a job or, or go into service. So, uh, I said, well, I had no intentions of going into service. So, uh, I got the job, but, but a couple of weeks after that, I got this phone call at, at home and it was a uh, Dr. Walker. And, uh, he said, I'm, I'm Leroy Walker. I'm the coach at North Carolina college. And, uh, I've heard some great things about you. In fact, the coach at Plainfield told me that, uh, if I don't get you down there, then I'm going to, you know, lose out on a great athlete. So, uh, I ended up going to North Carolina College and the coach re- basically recruited me over the phone. He didn't know how big I was, didn't really know how what kind of athlete I was other than you know uh, what Coach Brown had told him. So the first time he saw me was when I got off the bus in, in Durham. He looked at me, he said, how tall are you? I said, I'm six feet. He said, yeah, great size for a quarter mile. A mile. And, I, and I said, a quarter? I said, I'm a sprinter. <laughs> he told me, he said, well, my sprinters run from the 55 to the five. And I, I, I thought I was in a world of trouble at that point. I was like, what oh, my freshman year. I did, you know, really well as a freshman. And uh, my primary events was the 100, 200, and the long jump. I had high jumped a little bit in high school and messing around. I jumped 6'4 in high school. Had a better than average freshman year. Then uh, we went to a meet in South Carolina, in Orangeburg, South Carolina. And I had won the long jump in ran on a couple of relay teams and so he asked me did uh i want a triple jump and i said well i'd never triple jump before uh you know in jersey there was no triple jump so uh, he took me behind the stadium and he did a standing triple jump and uh, he told me you know just to do a few standing triple jumps and go back out there put my marks down and, and see how it goes well, I ended up winning, and it wasn't a great jump. It was just around 47 feet, but uh, I seemed to take to it naturally. So uh, he started working with me in the triple jump, you know, along with the long jump and along with the sprinting. And my sophomore year, I ended up winning the NC two A championship. I won the, at that time, it was college division and university division. College division would be division two now, right. and uh, university would be the, the big one, uh D one. And at that time they took the D- division two champion, could was allowed to go and compete at the at the D one level in the championship. I won Pen Relays first in April. That was my first major championship ever. What was that summer.
0: like to, to yeah. win the pen? You were the outstanding athlete at the Pen relays. What was that sixty
1: four? Sixty four. But in sixty three I won and uh it was unexpected. I had been jumping 48 feet plus. Uh, so uh, we go to pin Relays. And never forget that Friday morning, I woke up and I felt as, as sick as a dog. Nauseous and stuff. And I think it was more nerves than anything. I never forget, coach took me to get something to eat. And the triple jump was around 10 o'clock in the morning. We go to Franklin Field. And it's the first time I'd, uh, I'd ever been on the field. My high school team didn't compete at Penn Relays, but I had gone to Penn Relays every year, you know, just to see them. And so uh, I won. My coach was just as excited as I was because it was so unexpected. In fact, uh, I came back to the room. My roommate uh, was is still in the bed. He pulled the covers from over his head and he said, How'd you do? So I said, I won. And he said, Get out of here. You didn't win, man. I said, I did. I said, I got to watch. And stuff, you know, like, you know, in high school, you got medals and stuff, you know, and I got this pin relay watch. He got on the phone and started calling other teammates in their rooms. He said, no, I want a watch, man. He wanted the pin relay watch and stuff, you know. So, uh, everybody was excited. I was excited. And in that afternoon, we were running in the trials of the four by two. There was a, a mishandoff handoff between the second and third leg. You know, you you get ready. I'm in the zone. I was running anchor leg. And I, you're in the zone and you're excited. And, and I really felt like I was really going to do something because, of, you know, winning the watch, just the excitement of winning. I didn't know that there was a, a hap uh, in the zone. So I, I'm down and I'm waiting. I see seven teams come around the curve and I don't see my man. So I waited till everybody came through the zone with the baton and I, I took off and ran. And I ran with, you know, no baton. Coach said you know, you didn't have to run. You know, why'd you run? And so I said, I said, coach, I said, my mother, my sister, my cousins, I got friends. Everybody came down here to see me run. <laughs> and because they didn't get a chance to see me win triple jump. It was so early in the morning. So uh, I ran and and I'll never forget Doc. We call him Doc because he was a doctor. But, you know, he told other guys on the team, he said, he said, you see that? He said, this guy is going to be a great one. He said, because I don't believe any one of you other guys would have done that. <laughs> and so, and I, I know I, I must have looked foolish running running that 200 leg, you know, with no baton. But it was just that, you know, I felt like everybody came to see me run. It had, you know, from high school and, and my mom. And, and, and that was the first college meet that she had come to. And uh, so uh, from that point on, I think it just... You know, winning pin Relay has just made me feel like that I could be good. I I didn't, you know, I, I didn't grow up thinking that uh, I was going to be an Olympian or anything. I just always wanted to go out and perform to the best of my ability. I went on after that into May. I won the Division Two championship, which was college division. And then coach said, uh, he said, well, you can compete in the uh, university championships and, they, and I'll never forget, the first time I'd been on a plane was when we flew to uh, Division II championships, college division, they were in Chicago. So I go to Chicago and I win. And Coach said, well, the university championships are in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So he said, you don't have to go if you don't want to. But I said, yeah, I want to go. And uh, I was the only one on the team. And I was traveling by myself. So Coach got me a train ticket on the Santa Fe uh, train to uh, Albuquerque. I thought I was living big time. I'm, I'm on the train. Uh, and remember, Santa Fe Railroad had those uh, dome cars. And we rode, you know, the train you know, route was through the Grand Canyon and stuff. So I'm like really in awe and excited. So I get down to Albuquerque. Coach never thought I was going to win. I didn't think I was going to win. I went out and I won the, the university uh, championship. And I'll never forget, I called Coach. long distance to give him the results so that he could put them in the paper. So I started at the eighth place because they scored eight eight places in the NCAA championships. And I got down to second and coach said, Norm, why are you giving me all of these results and and you're not in them? And I said, first place, Norm Tate, North Carolina College. The phone went silent. (laughs) I said, coach, you there? He said, you won? I said, I said, yes. I said, uh, why wouldn't I have won? You know, that's why I went down there to win. <laughs> and uh, but I, I had no idea that I was going to be the, you know, NCA Division One champion.
0: When did so, you start uh, to think the Olympics? When does that uh, come into your in, mind that that's a possibility? In,
1: in my junior year, because I just kept getting better. I was a good sprinter. I was the best sprinter on the team for two years, and then we got this kid from Trinidad. And so we would be trading off and on. Uh, I didn't know exactly what my best event was going to be. I excelled in the long jump. I jumped 25, nine in college. I ran nine, seven, I mean, I ran nine, 300 yards against Bob Hayes, in fact, in South Carolina. So I wasn't thinking about any particular event and uh, as to which one that uh, I would be the best at. But for some reason, the triple jump just came natural and I just got better and better. So by my senior year, I was one of the, I was, you know, in the top three collegiately and in the top five uh, in the open, in the rankings. So um, I set my, my sights going into my, my uh, in, in 64. I said, well, I qualified for the trials in track and field news. It was so funny uh, because track and field news had me ranked third. in in the country. They used to pick the births that, you know, uh, who was going to be on the team. And they had me third that whole year. I went out to the trials. They were in in L.A. It was the first big shock that I had. We trained at um, Mount Sac uh, Junior College and the trials were at the Coliseum. A couple of days before the event, they said we could, we wanted to, we could go to the Coliseum and practice. So, uh, got on the bus and we went to the Coliseum and you enter the Coliseum from the street and it's like a tunnel. And when you come out of the tunnel, you're right there on the track and right where the hundred meters starts. And when you look up, you see, you seen that big, uh, that tower with the clock in the Coliseum. That's the first thing I could see in this huge stadium. And it looked even larger because there was no one sitting in it, you know, just look. And the first thing that came to my mind was, wow, it's like I was like in shock. Like, what is this going to look like with people in it? Biggest stadium I've ever been in. Everything was like, look, gigantic and stuff, you know, with this big, empty stadium. I think it it just overpowered me from that point on. I, did, I just didn't even feel the same. The day of the trials, I was just like, you know, one of the kids it was I was jumping against, he said, what's wrong? You look like you're running in slow motion. You know, I didn't feel like that, but it was just that I was just power, you know, and, and overpowered. And I finished last. I made the finals and I finished dead last. I don't know if you remember the name Charlie Mays. He was from Jersey City and he was competing in the long jump, We had competed against each other in high school and college. And Charles missed the, the 64 trials, didn't make the, make the 64 trials. So we rode back on the plane together. We we made a vow that we were going to make the 6 Olympic team. And from that point on, uh, all my training, I made the sacrifices, everything that I had to make. And all of my training was pointed towards me making the 60 team. We trained at Lake Tahoe. We went out there the second week in July, and we were in Lake Tahoe until the trials were in September. But in my mind, I wasn't going to leave there without being on the Olympic team. I only had one good jump in the trials. My groin was a little sore, and uh, I put it all into one jump. And jumpers, uh, even, even running, you know when you're having a good day. It's just a feeling. And that one ju- good jump I had in the trials was the one that put me on the team. But when I landed in the pit, in my mind, I knew that that jump had put me on Olympic team. What was that uh, feeling cool. like? I got out of the pit and it was like a lot of times jumpers, you know, they'll land and they'll look to see where they landed and and they'll Stand by the, the board to see what the measurement is. I got out of the pit and walked back, and I knew I just knew, and, and it was that feeling. Said I, I just made the Olympic team. It was greatest feeling in the world because because it was like everything that I had dreamed of came to light. You know, on that one jump. When we went back uh, after the, after the, the meet ended that day, because that wasn't the last day of the trials. They ran the trials just like Olympic competition uh, over period of a week, just like uh, the schedule was uh, in the games. So uh, I had a couple of more days uh, after I finished. So I came home. They let me come home, came home for three days, four days. And uh, we had to go back to Lake Tahoe to uh, finish you know, training, get ready uh, to go to Mexico. My performance at the games, the, the injury nagged me. And I just missed qualifying for the finals. But even then, I didn't think that I would have performed to the best because I was just, I was injured. But just walking into the stadium at the opening ceremonies, everything was uh, just like a a dream come true. My mother was able to uh, come down uh, uh, and be there and see me. And that, that just made me feel that, you know, much greater because growing up, my mom was my biggest supporter. She came to every track meet, college. My mom would go anywhere there was the track meet that I was in when I was in college. So after I con- continued to compete after college, she was always there. And so to, for her to, to, you know, be able to come to Mexico and she, you know, I was born in West Virginia. My Mom came to Jersey after I was born and Two years later, she came to West Virginia, got me. I was with my my grandparents and uh, she was working, single mom. So uh, anything that, you know, would make her feel good uh, and anything I could do, you know, I was able to do. She, uh, the summers uh, uh, when I was in high school, she told me, you know, join a track club and, and run. Uh, don't worry about working, getting a job, anything. And that's the way, you know, that's the way she was. I'll tell anybody, she was my biggest supporter. And I don't know if I would have two people, one, my mom, and then Dr. Walker. Without those two people, I probably wouldn't have realized those dreams that I had.
0: Time for a break here on One on One. We will have more with Norman Tate right after this. And we are back on one on one. Our guest this week is Rowan, assistant track coach Norman Tate, sixty-eight Mexico City. There's your experience, and of course, that's also famous for Tommy Smith, John Carlos mm-hmm. putting their fists in the air. Right. As an African American man, what did that what did that moment mean to you? And were you in the stadium? Were you aware? When did you become aware?
1: The talk of the boycott began way before then. Um uh, We had meetings while we were in Tahoe the whole time we were meeting. Well, initially it was a boycott. The majority of the athletes weren't open to a boycott. I don't think, uh, in fact, I I don't even say I don't think. I know I wouldn't have boycotted the Olympic Games. I was prepared if I had had the opportunity to... uh, to be on the stand, I was prepared to do some form of demonstration. The boycott was out was because after 64, I spent another four years preparing to go to the Olympics. At that time uh, and growing up where, and, and it's funny, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, how you grew up. I had uh, white teammates who were my best friends when I was in high school. I went to, you know, East Orange High School. It was integrated. And if there was racism, I was blind to it. I guess uh, because of uh, you know where I grew up. Carlos grew up in Harlem uh, uh, under different circumstances. Tommy grew up in Ashley in uh, Mississippi and then migrated. His family migrated to to uh, California. He had worked in you know uh, picking cotton and uh, and stuff. So the racism with them was more prevalent than it was in my you know, growing up. And I really didn't open my eyes to it until I went to school in the South, you know, where I saw a lot of things that, uh, saw some of the things that you read about in the papers and people talked about. So, uh, I began to, uh, to grow more in tune to what the real world was. But the idea of boycotting the games, I felt that I would let down my mom, my coach, my school, and, and my, you know, beside myself. After, uh, they realized that it wouldn't be a joint effort to boycott the games. Uh, The talk then uh, uh, went to, well, what can we do to illustrate what was going on, you know, in the country? We talked about various things, uh, wearing uh, black socks, uh, dyeing our shoes. Sport is funny. Track was an amateur sport, and... The only money that you received then was under the table. I was sponsored by Puma and I I, I remember Puma sending me shoes to school and there'd be five hundred dollars in, in the shoe and stuff, you know. You couldn't tell anybody because the AAU rules were very strict. In fact, at that time, you couldn't even win a prize at a track meet to where the value was more than 75 dollars. If you uh, did accept a prize uh, that was worth more than 75 dollars, you could be suspended and stuff. Uh, very strict amateur rules. So the only money that you could get in track was was under the table. and if you got any if you were good enough to get any money from it back there it was only two companies. It was Adidas and Puma. Uh, you couldn't you know, you didn't tell anybody. You took the money and put it in your pocket, you felt good about it because it was extra extra money we had come to an agreement at one of our meetings that we were going to die everybody was going to die to choose black and everybody all athletes all the black athletes agreed to it the next day they had another meeting and there's this white guy sitting in the room the only white guy in the room you know all the black athletes on the team and uh, he gets up to speak well, he was introduced by, uh, and I, you know, I'm not going to call out anybody. He was introduced by one of the athletes uh, as the Adidas representative. And so he got up and spoke and he talked about, you know, what we were doing. And he thought it was a very good idea that we dye our shoes black. And so he even agreed uh, that he would take everybody's shoes and have them dyed black, but leave the, the markings visible, the Puma massage or the, Three stripes, because some of the athletes that were getting larger, you know, amounts of money because of who they were and the events they were in, felt that uh, if uh, they was getting money from Adidas or Puma, and the, and the shoe wasn't recognizable uh, as a Puma or Adidas shoe, then they felt that they might not get the money that they thought they were going to get. So that ended that form of demonstration. So. It was back and forth, back and forth constantly. It was just decided amongst the athletes that if anybody wanted to uh, demonstrate, they they would do it on their own. And basically that's how it came about with with John and and Tommy. They decided that they were going to. And we didn't know, you know, because it was on. Everybody was on their own at that point. And so when it happened, we were shocked too. And we always sat in, as a group in the stadium. And, and we went to, whether you were competing in that day or not, we were all at the stadium and we all sat in the group. So when it happened, it was like, you know, wow. <laughs> and the, I mean, the stadium, I mean, it was like thousands, that many thousands of people in the stadium all of a sudden was like dead silent at first. And then the boos and jeers came and everyone in the stadium besides the black athletes, realized, you know, what was going on. The boos and cheers came up. And then that, that night, uh, Avery Brundage called for a meeting. He was president of the uh, IOC at that time. And he, he was uh president of the USOC when Jesse Owens was running. And he had been a disliked person by the black athletes from Jesse Owens' time, you know, to to uh, to that time. So uh, he called a meeting and, and called for the USOC to uh, take uh, John and uh, Tommy off the team, put them off the team and send them home. Originally, it was stated that they, they had taken their medals, but they didn't. That never happened. Uh, so we met that night. They brought Jesse Owens in. Uh, USOC brought Jesse Owens in to talk to the athletes. And I knew Jesse Owens. I had the opportunity to meet Jesse Owens when I was in college. And uh, and uh, he was always my mom's idol. So uh, I got to know him real well. I always thought he was a great guy, you know, great athlete, great person. But uh, USOC brought him in to talk to us. And uh, he started out by telling us about his story in Germany and standing up to Hitler and stuff. And most athletes were angry because they had already announced that Tommy and John were going to be sent home. So they booed Jesse out of the room. It was the one time that I really felt bad about that situation because I just thought that he wasn't the person to be treated that way based on, you know, his accomplishments in the sport. In their mind, they thought he was acting like Uncle Tom. Is That's the way they put it. And so uh, to see him walk out of the room really with his head down, it was a sad thing to, to see in in person. But we met and uh, we spoke to USOC officials and, and they were abdomen that Tommy and John wasn't going to be able to stay up. So from that point on, it was an angry group of athletes. And, and if you remember Lee and them in the relay, they wore the black berets. Bob Beeman, when he stood on the bridge, he had his pants rolled up, he had on long black socks. But no one really noticed those things just because of the, the power uh, of uh, John and and Tommy's demonstration and stuff. Those things basically went unnoticed. But uh, it got to me and it sort of opened my eyes up. Uh, I started, you know, looking at things a little different, being able to recognize the racism that, that existed, not only in the country, but in our sport at that time. You just started to notice things and stuff. So it did bring about a big change in the attitudes of, uh, of the black athletes from that point on. I even, uh, I was booed at Madison square garden. I came back, came back home and I moved to New York. I was still competing. Uh, in fact, I won five national championships, uh, indoors, uh, in the long jump and triple jump. I had one, one long jump title earlier in 66 indoors in Albuquerque. But, um, I talked uh, with my teammates. I was running for New York Pioneer Club. I talked my teammates into ordering these red, black, and green uniforms. And uh, I had a circle in the back of the running jersey with a fist in the middle. We were supposed to run the uh, sprint melee relay. And I got down to Madison Square Garden, and these guys... It backed out fear of, of our coach that we had Joe Yancey. He was a strict guy, uh, old school. He started the Pioneer Club back in 1936 because uh, New York AC was only other on track club in the city at that time, and they didn't allow black athletes to represent them. So uh, Joe Yancey started the New York Pioneer Club, which eventually uh, guys that ran for Pioneer Club uh, started uh, Philadelphia Pioneers, and they were like you know, brother clubs. So I decided to wear the uniform anyway. I couldn't wear it in the real life because everybody had to be in the same uniform. So that afternoon in the long jump I wore and then that night in in, in the triple jump I wore and I got the booze and stuff. Uh, but, you know, that I, was, I was older, my late 20s going into my 30s. So the booze didn't bother me. I just felt like I needed to do it just to let everybody know how I stood as far as, uh, cause uh, uh, that year before, John had come to the garden to run the 60 and it was like close to 19,000 people boom when they announced his name. And so I just felt that I needed to support the cause at that time, you know, Mr. Yancey put me off the team for a couple of months. Uh, told me he didn't want to see anything like that again, but I became more vocal. You know, as far as, as uh, dealing with uh, the, the problem, and stuff. so it, it made me grow up.
0: When did coaching first appear so, on your radar? Was this? Are you still competing and starting to think that you? Uh, yeah, you I want was to still com-
1: I, Well, I was still competing, and I was running for Pioneer Club. This was like in '70. So I I, uh, I even went to the 72 trials. In fact, I went to the 72 trials as number one long jumper in the country. I basically, I was still triple jumping, but but I was starting to have uh, lower back problems from the pounding and the triple jump. So uh, I was put more focus in long jumping. And in uh, 71, I had gone 27 feet in the long jump. And it was top jump in the world that year. And uh, in 72, I went to 72 trials in Eugene. I was number one long jumper. And for some reason, injury just seemed to have followed me in my career. When it was time to really be at my best, I'd have an injury. And I went to the 72 trials with a growing pool that I had injured two weeks prior to the national championships. So when I went to the trials, I was I was hurting. And I made the finals. And then in the finals, finals was the next day. After that first day of making the finals, I just you know, couldn't function 100%. But I was training at the armory in New York indoors. We were training at the 369th Armory, which was a Black regiment in World War One and Two. They had the armory in, in Harlem. And that's where New York Pioneer Club trained. And the New York City PAL girls team also trained there. That was before there was women's track in college. So it was all club teams for women. Connie Ford was the coach of the PAL team. And he was also the director of PAL from New York City. And he was the coach of the girls team. So Connie was the women's coach, co-women's coach of the 68 women's team, along with Ed Temple from, from Tennessee State. So when I came back and I started running for Pioneers, Connie asked me one night, he said, uh, no could you uh, show some of the girls on the team, you know, work with them when they start? because I was running the 60 and stuff. So I said, yeah. So uh, I started working with the girls. So uh, I was actually starting to coach while I was still competing. I stopped competing in 75, but I'd also taken a job with Manhattan College with Fred Dwyer, who was the head coach. And Freddie, Fred was originally from East stars and uh, he was a great modeler. 1,500-meter runner. So uh, I was married living in Riverdale, about five minutes walking distance from Manhattan College. So I became assistant coach at, at, at Manhattan, and I was still competing. Uh, they had started this pro track tour in '70, right after this 72 game. So I joined that along with Carlos was running, Bob Beeman. It didn't last but a couple of years, about three years it lasted. But I was competing and uh, coaching at Manhattan as assistant once i stopped competing in 75 and it's funny how i stopped competing because i was you know competing on this pro tour my son was born we had gone to japan in hawaii with this pro tour and i came back and my wife and my sister my my wife was pregnant and my sister i had my sister staying there with her When I would go away, they picked me up at the airport. It was a Sunday. My wife was behind the wheel when they pulled up. And I'm like a little upset. Why are you driving? You know, I mean, she was in a ninth month. And uh, I said, that's why Brenda's here, you know. And Brenda said, she's hard at it. She didn't want me to drive. So I got, you know threw my bags in the car and I got behind the wheel to drive. At three o'clock that Monday morning, she goes into labor. <laughs> so uh, my son was born that Monday morning, like 6.30 in the morning. And I was supposed to compete in a pro meet in Durham at Duke Stadium that following week. And I called up the people and told them, I said, uh, I just retired. And that was the last track meet I was in, organized track meet, the last organized track meet I was in that week uh that weekend before my son was born in Tokyo. That was my last meet. I said, I have bigger and better things uh, in my life and stuff. So uh, I was working at Bronx Community College for Bronx Community College and coaching at Manhattan. So I was there two years. I was still working with Connie with the girls on the side. After the second year in Manhattan, I looked at some of the kids that I was trying to recruit and stuff. And uh, I would look at What they didn't know when they got to college and stuff. So I said, you know, I'm going to see if I can get me a high school coaching job. I said, because uh, any kid that I coach that uh, I'm going to send to college, they're going to know everything there is to know uh, and be prepared to compete on that level. So I went out to uh, Long Island and I started coaching at Hempstead High School. And I was there from 81 to 86. And that time I had one girls team that set a national high school record in the four by two. At that time it was national high school record. I had numerous state champions. Dr. Walker would call me occasionally and he said, Norman said, you know, he said, "Uh, you really have a knack for coaching. He said, you must've learned a lot from me. (laughs) And I said, I did coach. (laughs) So I I started coaching. I just, just became my, my, my say was like me competing. In fact, my wife used to tell me, she said, you know, you're going to have a heart attack. and attract me one day. And I said, why? Because when I first started coaching, I'd get so excited. Kids running and I'm running and, and they jumping and I'm jumping, you know, in my seat and stuff. My wife said, you're going to have a heart attack. But uh, I've learned to be, you know, much calmer. I still get nervous and, and excited at meets and stuff. But I found that I really loved it. And when I moved to South Jersey, I moved to South Jersey in 86 from new york i was working at uh it was golden nugget at that time and i became director of uh of uh, eeo at golden nugget and then uh the hilton you know bought bought out uh steve Wynn, became the, uh the hilton and then Bally bought them out but i stayed there until until i retired in, in in 2006. in the process uh you know i wasn't coaching and i missed it well you know jack pierce Jack was uh, running, and uh, his wife was from Long Island. I, you know, I knew Marva. She was running uh, in track meets that I had in Long Island and stuff. And I saw Marva in the store down in Mays Landing one day, and I said, what are you doing down here? And I said, you know, Karen is, is living with us. She was going to law school. My daughter, her and Karen, grew up together and ran track. She said, well, I'm engaged. uh, And said, you probably know uh, the guy I'm engaged to. So I said, who? So she said, Jack Pierce. So I said, well, I don't know him personally. I've seen Jack run, you know, when he was at Morgan State at Penn Relays. And it's so funny because I won the Outstanding Athlete at Penn in 64. Jack won it when he was at Morgan in 1984, 20 years later. So she, she called Karen one day my daughter, they got together. Marva called me and she said, you know, Jack's looking for a coach. Uh, Wilbur Ross had been coaching Jack, but Wilbur had moved to Puerto Rico. Jack went down there for a couple of months and didn't like it. So he came back home and he got a job in one of the casinos in Lang City and he was competing. And basically he was training himself. Marva was helping coach him and stuff. So Marva said, call me up. And she said, Norm, she said, uh, Are you still uh, coaching? I said, well, I haven't since I left Hempstead. She said, well, you know, Jack is uh, looking for a coach. I was wondering if you'd be interested. I said, yeah. Well, I said, let's, uh, won't you guys come over to the house? So they came over and Jack and I talked. I told them, I said, "Uh, I want to do this, but uh, I don't want it to be a waste of time. If we're going to do it, it's got to be 100% effort on your part because he was working. And he was running good. He was in he, he was in the in the world championships in eighty-eight. He was, you know, in all of the major meets, but he wasn't winning. And talking to him, I sensed that he had the attitude that he felt happy because he made the finals. And I've always been about coaching to win. I mean, when I was an athlete, I trained to win. So when I saw that attitude, and I told him, I said, well, if I do this, I said, I'm going to put in, I'm going to give it a hundred percent effort. And I expect the same from you. And it wasn't so much after I got to know Jack that he just felt satisfied with making the finals and stuff. He's one of the, the most unaggressive athletes that I've ever had to deal with. He was just a nice guy. I've heard that expression a lot. I never, you know, paid much attention to him you said, nice guys, finish last. I come to to, to think differently. I've not met him because it was like he's too nice. So we started practicing and I was constantly talking to him about Jack. You got to be more aggressive, man, and, and stuff. And some people you can talk them into changing, you know, athletes, others you can't. And I was having a hard time with him. I started coaching Jack in, in January 91. He was still, you know, the same, unaggressive acting almost to the extent of being lazy. But it wasn't laziness. It was just that he could take it or leave it. And I'm looking at the guy, and I'm looking at his ability. I'm saying, this kid could really be good. So uh, that spring, in April, he he always opened up the season at this Grand Prix meet. Back now, it's the Diamond League. Back then, it was a Grand Prix circuit, they called it. He went to Brazil, and uh, that Sunday, I get a phone call, and he, uh, I said, were you back home already? He said, no, I'm still in Brazil. I said, what's up? He said, I don't know what you're doing, but it's working. I said, what do you mean? He said, I just pr Jack, when I was coaching Jack, he had run like 13.32. Well, he opened up the season. He ran in 13.19, fastest time in the world first meet. And it sort of changed his whole attitude. And uh, I came back. Jack would call me some days. I'd still be at work in Lake City. And he'd say, are we having practice today? And I said, yeah, why not? He said, well, it's cloudy outside. I'm like, cloudy? So what? It's not raining. He said, well, it looks like it's going to (laughs) rain. He he was that type of athlete, you know, like didn't like practice, try to find the excuse not to practice. So when he came back, I could see that his attitude was changing a little bit. And this is 91, right, April. So now we're shooting towards, uh, uh, he won He won the, the the Outdoor Nationals at Randall's Island. And uh, the World Championships win in Tokyo. So uh, we're training up at Winslow Township Track. And we had a really great practice. So we're leaving the track. And I've always talked to my athletes, even now. I always use... The terminology we. I, I never say I or you. I always say we. It's always been my belief and my philosophy in coaching that if the athlete doesn't perform well, I'm just as much at fault as he is. I don't you know put all the onus on them and stuff. Uh, I take just as much blame for him not performing well as, as he may. So I said, Yeah, man. I said, I said, we just I said, we're ready. And he looked at me and he said, he said, I hope so. I have never, ever physically touched an athlete in my life until that day. And this is a 29-year-old grown man. And I grabbed him in his T-shirt like this. And I said, what do you mean, hope? I said, if you're hoping now, we may as well not go to Tokyo. And so so it kind of scared him. And Jack is an imposing guy. Jack's like 6'2", and he weighed about 185. Look bigger than me. I weighed the same, but he looks bigger because when you're in shape, your muscle bulge more and stuff. And I'm saying, "Am I crazy grabbing him like that?" But but uh, it like shocked him because he didn't he didn't believe I did it. And uh, he said, "Yeah, we're ready. We're ready. Go to Tokyo." And I to this day I still think he won that race. If you look at the photo finish of the race and tell somebody who you think won this race and Everybody I've ever shown this photo to, they and said, that guy did. You can't tell who's who on the photo because it's in black and white. Those photo finished photos. They gave them both the same time, him and Greg Foster. I thought they gave it to Greg by thousands of a second. They went down to thousands of a second, but they gave both of them 13, no six. And then they went to thousands of a second and said Greg was... If you look at the picture and you look at the way it was supposed to be determined by Torso, Jack won the race. But it changed his whole outlook. From that point on, he had the mindset that he could be the best. Next year, 92, he won the Olympic trials. We went to Barcelona. He got the bronze medal. Then he got two silver medals in the world championships and stuff. After that, you know, my wife passed in 2004. So Larry James was at Stockton and Larry and I were teammates. My daughter's a lawyer and she was uh, working in Atlantic City out of one of the her law firm's offices. They had one in Newark, so she was back and forth, but she happened to run into Larry. Larry knew who she was, and Larry asked her, what, what was I doing? And so she said, oh, he's actually doing nothing, and is worrying me. He's sitting around moping and stuff. You know, this is 2006. Since uh, my mom passed, he hasn't really been doing it, going to work, but he's not Himself. So Larry called me and he said, "Norm, I need help over here." Larry was athletic director. He said, "I'd like for you to come over here and help my coach out. You know, do some coaching, help bring the, the team back up to the standards they had when him and Don Bragg was there." I said, "Yeah, okay." So I went to Stockton. I was there two years, and unfortunately, Larry passed away. He was sick when i started but it got worse you know he had cancer and he passed so uh that summer ringo called me ringo adams and, and asked me you know I would you like to come over to uh rowan i said well i'm in stockton i don't know uh you know i talked to fritz about you and so uh they talked me into coming to rowan larry had passed i didn't feel that i owed any allegiance to uh Stockton. other than you know i was just a coach uh, that uh, they were paying to, to to coach and so i handed in you know, my resignation and i left and i came to rowan and it's been great i've been there 12 years uh i've had over 55 all americans on the men's side uh and for a while, I was dual coach. I was coaching the women and the men. had over 35 women, all Americans. One uh, national champion indoors. Uh, this girl Shayla in the 200. I've had two national championship 4 by 4s in back to back. Actually, in uh, 2013 and 2014, I've had uh, two individual champions in the hurdlers. In the hurdles, uh, Dave Benjamin. And this guy, uh, Anthony's limo in the 400 hurdles. So it's been a great experience for me. I just feel like uh, I have something to uh, offer and I enjoy working with kids. They don't believe I'm as old as I am. You know, they said, coach, you 78. I said, yeah, I'm 78. Man said, you know, I still do exercise with them and and things. And uh, it's just... uh, been fun I feel that uh it's it's kept me going at times I joke when I said yeah I said I I bet you I still beat you out of the blocks (laughs) and stuff you know it's been fun and I've been fortunate enough to have some good good kids always tell people you know they say yeah people tell me you really a great coach and I said well in order to be a great coach you got to have some great athletes. Like all coaches in all sports, you have some years where coaching seems hard because you just don't have the athletic talent. But I've always felt that uh, if you got the talent, then I can bring the best out of it. I actually have that philosophy about all athletes I work with. I tell the kid when I'm recruiting, I said, listen, there's no guarantee that you're going to be in the Olympics or you're going to be the conference champion or the national champion. The only thing that I can guarantee is that you're gonna be better athlete, you know, when you leave here than you were before you came, and be a good student. Because uh, if I hadn't gone to college and studied and graduated, I wouldn't be be here telling you this here, you know, now and stuff, you know.
0: And we're as we're winding down here, as we're running out of time. Real quick, final question: What is your favorite part of coaching?
1: My favorite part is just seeing seeing the individual grow. And, and, and achieve the goals that they uh, set for themselves. We've had kids that make sacrifices because uh, the nationals are always doing graduation, always. You know, the first weekend in, in in June. And I tell the kid, listen, it's your choice to make. If you want to walk with your classmates or you want to go to the national championships, I always let them choose. And if they just say, Coach, I've been here for four years. I want to walk, you know, my parents can see me and go ahead because that's a big achievement. If you want to go to the nationals and see if you can win a national championship and do so. That's a big achievement. But just seeing them achieve their goals and be successful. A lot of kids we get now, kids coming from schools where the kids that are their coach, I coach, and that makes me feel good. You know, is several of the schools in the area. You know, have kids coaching them now that I coached and they tell their kids, listen, this is where you wanna go. Because Coach Tate is a great guy and he's gonna look out for
0: you. Norman Tate, thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Okay, thank you, sir.
0: And that will do it for this week's episode of One on One. want to thank Norman Tate, assistant track coach at Rowan University, for being our guest this week. If you like the podcast and want to help us out and you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. Now, you can follow the show on Twitter at One on One Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at on 1060 Thanks again for listening and check us out again next week when we will have another conversation with someone you should know more about.